You are now listening to Sanity at the Movies. Hooray! This is Nathan Amerson, your humble and obedient host, sitting in the back seat here of the car that is being driven by Pastor Jacob Menzel. Jake, I'm so thankful for your driving skills. You know all yeah. about the house with the chickens and Me everything. Me too, but we're going to have to make this quick because I'm just going to go straight to the theater and Sanity's kind of a one-street town, so... Oh, man. Yeah, this is... I feel like this is taking forever. <laughs> <laughs> ben, uh, well, let me introduce, of course, our beloved engineer, uh, Benjamin J. Sulser here with us on our way to the movie palace. And Ben, what movie are we seeing today? We're seeing a... Oh, watch out for that chicken! Good Jake! There was no don't, chicken. Don't you complain about my driving. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and I maybe not. she's a little old lady. Don't call her a chicken. <laughs> Uh, you know? <laughs> Have some respect. Have some respect. <laughs> she looks like a chicken. <laughs> you know, to the Hemanologians, everybody's a chicken, I hear. <laughs> Listen, you said, what, what, did you say what movie we were going to see uh, at Sanityville Movie said, I think You said Mission Impossible 6. Mission Impossible 6. That's Fallout, they call it. Fallout, yeah. Now, can you quote the entire trailer from that thing? Because I feel like I probably could. I've no, seen it so just, many times. Just, just about... Can't take the pressure. (laughs) (laughs) So we're seeing Mission Impossible 6, and uh, as always, I will offer a little context. Your mission. Should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? You had a terrible choice to make in Berlin. One life over millions. And now the world is at risk. Short context, because I don't think, I think people kind of know what Mission Impossible 6 is. But let me talk quick, very quickly about, I'll talk first about the director. His name is Christopher McQuarrie. He went to high school with a rather controversial figure, Brian Singer, who directed the X-Men franchise. Really, you could argue. Superman Returns. And Superman Returns, one of, one of Jake's favorite superhero movies. Brian Singer basically kickstarted the superhero renaissance with the original X-Men. These days... Brian Singer in disgrace has been accused by several different PL people of being a pedophile, neither here nor there. The point is that Christopher McQuarrie, the director of Mission Impossible, went to high school with Brian Singer and actually came to California to write screenplays after Brian, I guess, had had a little bit of success. McQuarrie, I think along with Singer, wrote the screenplay for The Usual Suspects, a movie that I despise. Which was directed by Singer. I hate that movie, and I specifically hate the screenplay. I hate the screenplay. I will not ruin it if anyone has managed not to see it, if they don't know the big twist and everything. But I think it's one of the worst twists, and I hate it, and I can't talk any more about it, except for that I think it's a movie that's built on a gimmick and betrays everything that's interesting about itself. You don't have to pay me for that one, folks. Anyway, McQuarrie went on to be a scriptwriter and script doctor. He has written the scripts for many a Tom Cruise movie. You got your Valkyrie, The Mummy, Edge of Tomorrow. He's basically been Tom Cruise's guy for the last 10 years. Directed Jack Reacher, which I think is maybe one of the best outside of the Impossible franchise, one of the best Tom Cruise movies and maybe one of the best action movies of... Uh, that might be a slight exaggeration, but Jack Reacher is just a really, really solid action movie with really solid action, kind of old school action where you can actually tell what's happening and it's not. Plus, it has Robert Duvall. In Plus, it has Robert Duvall, Duvall and he's Duvall. awesome. The kind of action movie that should just be the sort of thing that that, that Hollywood turns out like that's what a B movie should be. That yeah. should just be standard. Yeah. Instead, it feels kind of exceptional, which is well, sad. It's a sad commentary on the state of the industry. Yeah, I think Macquarie's kind of like that. He 
he's like a director's director. He understands all the ways that the directors make things happen in movies, and he's one step ahead of you in terms of the level of detail and craft. Now, Jake, you were telling me earlier that you listened to a podcast with an interview with Christopher McQuarrie this morning, and you thought he sounded like a really cool guy. Care to expound on that? Yeah, he just sounded really unpretentious and humble. A guy was asking about his artistry, and he said he doesn't like that uh, the label artist being applied to him or really to directors because it's pretentious and hoity-toity. Hoity-toity was his word. And he likes to think of himself as more of just an entertainer. Artists are looked to almost in a priestly way and are full of themselves. He just thinks of himself as an entertainer. That's interesting given that he's pretty famous for one of those avant-garde post-Tarantino movies, aka The Usual Suspects. Which Yeah, and what he says about that is that that was sort of an accident. He didn't know that he was being avant-garde and breaking rules. He didn't know what rules there were to break. He had a friend from high school named Brian Singer who was super aggressive, a make-your-own-luck kind of guy, a networker, and that's how Singer, is very aggressive, got himself into the movie business and then pulled some of his friends along with them and really pressed them to produce. And so he was just working really hard to try to please his friend and give him a script won an Oscar, surfed off of that, but wasn't able to actually do anything for about seven years because he was just sort of learning the ropes, learning the rules that he had broken. You know, tried to assume the role of, of you know, writer, director, and just wasn't working out for him and was planning to get out of the movie business altogether. Huh. But then he became Tom Cruise's, like, dude, right? And decided to take a new approach. And the new approach to movies for him wasn't going to be, I am an artist, I have a vision, I have whatever. It was, I've got some skills. I don't have a vision of my own, but I'm willing to put my skills to service for your vision finding the right people to help them realize their vision. He, he says he doesn't have a style, doesn't have a directorial style. He has an ability to sort of help people realize their vision. And he got attached to Tom Cruise and believes in him and believes in his vision and they make a good team. Yeah. And so you hear him talk in this interview about his relationship with Tom Cruise. And he's like, you know what? I think he's a man of great character. I like him. He's very driven. He knows what he wants. He's aggressive, but he's not unkind about it. That was just fun, you know, to see him just sort of... What he said in the interview was that he feels like he's just always trying to talk to himself 20 years ago or 30 years ago and just say, hey, you know, this is hard and you need to hold your ego pretty loosely. If you want to make it into the business and make money, then there's a way to do that. But if you can come to terms with what you're good at and put what you're good at in the service of making something fun for people to enjoy... That's all he ever really wants to do. That's really cool. It's always nice to hear about someone that's not a pretentious jerk in an industry that may or may not have a few pretentious jerks. Let's just take a step back. Let's talk a little bit about the Mission Impossible series. That's an interesting series because the first movie came out in 96. And so it's been going a long time. People know the franchise. They know the first one is basically just a Brian De Palma movie. Brian De Palma being one of the movie brat pack from the 70s with Spielberg and all those guys. And he, it's a very much a, in his style with these weird suspense uh, set pieces and a plot that's really complicated and everything that De Palma was kind of known for at the time. And then the second one is very much a horrible John Woo movie. John Woo being the premier action specialist from Hong Kong. And it's got flying doves and people diving off of motorcycles. And And slow motion and firing guns. Which is slow motion gun firing is what John Woo has given us. Yeah, he invented it. Um, Well, Sam Peckinpah invented it. And Mm. John Woo then gave it to the world. Bad movie. But then J.J. Abrams... 
the guy who's just great at rebooting franchises, that's like his thing. That's what you call J.J. Abrams in for, I guess. He reboots the Mission Impossible franchise with number three. He gives Ethan Hunt a wife. He grounds it in a certain emotional reality and gives it a continuity. And three, four, and five are some of the best action movies, you know. Except that I hate three and think it's terrible. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of three. I really like Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. But I think it's Mm -hmm. a necessary palate cleanser after two and one. And it's a good way to give us a foundation that four and five then build on really beautifully. And that brings us to our star, Tom Cruise, because he is a very savvy manipulator and user of his own brand. And I think that's something that you have to understand about Tom Cruise is that he's basically a salesman. And if you ever see him in interviews, he's got that piercing stare and he looks you right in the eye. I imagine if Tom Cruise came into the room right now, and I've heard stories about how he's like this, he would shake all of our hands. He would say, hey, I'm Tom. And he'd make sure that each one of us got a moment where we just felt like we connected with him. And I think that's that's who he is. That's that's apparently who Donald Trump is. That's what they say. Yeah. If, if you don't like Donald Trump, they always say you need to spend a minute in a room with Donald Trump and you'll realize why he's successful um, because he can just make that connection. Bill Clinton, same thing. Tom Cruise, same thing. Tom Cruise, good politician, good salesman, good user and manipulator of his own star energy, his own brand. And you can see that from the very beginning with Cocktail, with Top Gun, with Days of Thunder. You can see Tom Cruise figured out a formula in the early days where he would play a young man and there'd be the mentor, whether it was Robert Duvall in Days of Thunder or the girlfriend even in Tom uh, Top Gun. Plus Tom Skerritt. Plus Tom Skerritt or um, Paul Newman in the the pool movie. Tom Cruise would just be this guy, this young guy that needed to learn a lesson and become a man and there'd usually be a sort of strong, hot girl in there, whether it was Demi Moore or Kelly he just, McGillis. Yeah. He's been a producer on a lot of his own movies it's just as soon as he sort of got the power to do it. And he's just been a good manipulator of his own brand. But there's been a problem with that because what he used to do is once he had the Mission Impossible franchise, I think he basically thought he was set for life. And what he would do is he would do a Mission Impossible every couple of years. And that would be his big action movie and it would make a gazillion dollars and enable his lavish lifestyle and all that. And then he would do these artsy movies in between, like you got your Born on the Fourth of July, personal favorite of mine, Magnolia, which which I think Cruz is, that's his best acting. He's fantastic in that movie. Vanilla Sky, things like that. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, but he would take risks in between his giant cemented commercial success. What happened was that Tom Cruise had some terrible marketing missteps in that he jumped over Oprah's couch. He became known as a crazy anti-psychiatry, anti-pill Scientologist. And suddenly it became cool to not like Tom Cruise and to consider Tom Cruise to be a dork at best, a psycho at worst. Since that time, we've seen Tom Cruise really retreat into just commercial filmmaking. He does a Mission Impossible every couple of years, and then in between that, he'll do a Jack Reacher or an Edge of Tomorrow or something else that's calculated to play on his image and make a lot of money. And he's really good at playing on his image. Like, Edge of Tomorrow, if you've seen that movie, or Live, Die, Repeat, whatever they finally decided to call it, it has the gimmick of Tom Cruise being horribly murdered 4,000 times in the movie. And so Tom Cruise was even self-aware enough to know people want to see a movie where I'm going to get shot in the head and splattered and it'll be fun for people to hate my character and see my character die a whole bunch and then my character will learn a lesson and 
will kind of bring people along. It'll be cathartic for the watching world, and then they'll feel a little bad for me. Right. And then they'll like my next movie better. Right. He's also, Jake and I were talking recently about The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Yeah. And mm-hmm. he's like, what did we, for, he, Forbes List just came out. He's one of the top entertainers. He, he's one of the top five, I think, highest paid entertainers and the highest paid actor in the world. Yeah, and the thing that's just on acting salary. And the thing that's interesting is nobody... Not just in the world, but all time. He is the all time highest paid actor in in the history of Forbes. And he's done it without ever making a classic movie. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger... He's done it while making a bunch of terrible movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could argue for the Fast and the Furious franchise. People really like those. I kind of checked out at a certain point, but they are the Fast and the Furious we could say is very good at doing what it does but things like Rampage or Skyscraper these are not great movies they're not movies that anybody really likes they don't actually make all that money stateside but they make a ton of money in China and in the other world markets and so Dwayne The Rock Johnson is being incredibly yeah, so successful S- Skyscraper is bigger in China than uh, any Star Wars movie or Avengers or Marvel movie of the past year right and it stars a Chinese cast I believe outside of The Rock a, a, it's set a in Chinese cast it's set in Hong Kong. Right. And it's just a very calculated, it did poorly in the States, but worldwide, it's the biggest movie worldwide right now. But increasingly, you'll see that stars who are savvy manipulators of their own brands will be doing things like that, where they realize that actually, it's actually the very qualities that make Dwayne The Rock Johnson not that exciting, that make his movies not be huge hits, make it so that he can translate. You know, he's a little bit lame. His movie, his stories aren't that exciting. The dialogue's not that great. Well, guess what? That all translates a lot better in a, in a foreign country than, you know, D- Robert Downey Jr., that for example. That those inside jokes, mm. the jokes that actually aren't inside jokes if you're in America, but they are if you're... Well, the example America, I just thought of was... The same cultural references. Like in uh, Civil War, there's a moment where in, in uh, Captain America Civil War, there's just a random throwaway moment where Tony Stark is like, I don't want to talk to Manchurian Candidate over here. Right. Well, that's hard to translate if people in China haven't seen the Manchurian Candidate or don't know what it is. A lot of those uh, nickname jokes, underoos. Right. I didn't even get that one. Really? Really. Robert Downey Jr. is a star that I think we would all agree we like a lot better than The Rock or Tom Cruise. He's got real personality, but that very quality of real personality is something that might make him a little hard to translate internationally. Tom Cruise... I think it's a little sad because he actually does have an interesting quality. I think was an interesting actor when he was doing those artier movies and those more taking some challenges. Now he's just crafted himself into kind of a bland action, running, jumping machine. But having said that, he's really good at it and he's really savvy about how he does it. A little bit like what we were saying with The Rock. He's the kind of guy who's never going to make your favorite movie, but he's always going to make a movie that is just quality. And that is, I guess we'll talk about what we're expecting, but I do not think that this Mission Impossible movie will be like my favorite movie of the year or my favorite movie ever, but I know it's just going to be good. And mm-hmm. and he's not going to take any major risks. Like, you know, whatever. He's Tom Cruise. I guess the only other thing to say about him is that he is pretty famously a Scientologist. If anybody's seen the documentary Going Clear, which I think is a HBO documentary on Scientology that's pretty fascinating. It alleges all kinds of things, like that the the church was hooking crews up with women at a certain point from the church. You know, like women in the church would be given the job of just servicing Tom Cruise's needs, whatever the polite way of saying that is. That Tom Cruise used the Sea Org, which is an organization in the Church of Scientology, for free labor, lots of free labor. The church has a vested interest in keeping 
keeping Tom Cruise happy and letting him be their spokesman. And they will actually spend all this is all alleged. They will. There are people that have left the church that worked as the handlers and as the people that were going to make sure people like Travolta or Cruise were happy. They will spend a lot of money and uh, sex and everything like that to to keep these guys in line. So. That's something that's kind of icky about Tom Cruise. I don't know how that should affect our relationship with him as consumers, if at all, but it's, I suppose, something that's worth mentioning at least. Oh, look, we're here at the theater. <laughs> We've been parked here for a long time. All right, we're in the concession stand. Jake needs his... Swedish fish. Swedish fish. Swedish his giant fish. bag of Swedish fish. And Ben needs his... Goobers. His Whoppers. His Whoppers. <laughs> <laughs> And Nathan needs his cookie dough bites. Yay, cookie dough bites. All, All right. those things. Great. Mm. And uh, guys, why are we watching this Mission Impossible movie? Let's just talk about this real briefly while we're in line here. Uh, it's pretty easy. It's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fun. That's, that's, yeah. yeah. The other ones have been fun. Cool stunts. We need cool a break fights. from some serious stuff. Revoice. And Revoice and all that. The Gospel Coalition, Coalition and all Coalition that stuff. Coalition stuff. So we're just going to watch uh, a nice, fun movie and... Have fun talking about it, I think. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, that's that's what I'm looking good. forward to. All right, fellas, here you are. Uh, let's see. Swedish fish for a guy who looks Swedish but isn't. And uh, Thanks, Sully. Yeah, and uh, let's see. Yeah, uh, whoppers for a, a, a whopping good guy. Mister, You are Mr. J. Solster, aren't you? Uh, yeah, Ollie. It's it's me. Oh, good. Uh, Mr. J. Solster. And then cookie dough bites for a good cookie. <laughs> Ollie, you are a card. <laughs> That's what Mr. O'Reilly always says. <laughs> well, that was a quality use of time, but <laughs> even more quality will be this movie. Let's go into the theater, fellas. And while we watch the movie, here's a little something special for you to listen to. Greetings, friends. This is Rapid Fire. I'm Stone Huntington. And I'm Lance Lanford. you block-headed addle-brain. This imbecility will not stand. This imbecility will not stand, Chip. What imbecility is that now? Where's my dark roast from Perkin Bean? Chip, your mission, should you choose to accept it, and I really highly suggest that you do see and is how the fate of Sanityville and definitely this recording session depend upon it is to get Stone his dark roast from Perkin Bean. Lance, I'll put your girl's dog in a sack and drown it in the river. Stone, that's pretty harsh. Well, now the man hasn't had his coffee, Chip. Why, Lance, I'll I'll dock your pay. Oh, now Stone, Stone, that that's going a bit far, don't you? Don't you think? <laughs> uh, Chip, Stone Huntington will self-destruct in T-minus five minutes if you don't get that coffee. I accept this mission. Well, well, well. Mr. McGregory, what brings you to the Perkin Bean? I done chose to accept a mission, to get a dark roast for Mr. Huntington. Your mission, should you choose to accept it? I wonder, did you ever choose not to? Uh, I just need a dark roast, please. And yet, Mr. McGregory, we only have the blonde. Well, uh, could you just make another pot of the dark roast? Oh yes, Mr. McGregory, it would be our pleasure. It will only take 16 minutes. No! Hey, Miss Gas Station employee, I need a large dark roast. I would have taken you for a man more interested in a tall blonde. Uh, it ain't for me, ma'am. It's for Mr. Stone Huntington. I'd be happy to get something started. You don't understand what you're involved in. Oh, I think I understand very well. Now you need to walk away. 
from that donut case so I can restock it. I reckon I'm comfortable here. Please don't make me go through you. You had a terrible choice to make at the gas station. Now the world is at risk. You got that pot brewing? I'm afraid the Perkin Bean is closing now. What? I, I don't understand. The end you always feared is coming. And the blood will be on your hands. The fallout of all your good intentions. If you had held on to that dark roast this morning, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If I had held on to that dark roast, millions of people would be dead. Yes, they would. That's the job. What's he doing? I find it better not to ask. I'm getting some of that Jiffy Lube coffee. Chip, that's not who we are. Maybe we need to reconsider that. Falling in love with you wasn't part of this plan, Chip. I'll show you. When the coffee's out, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. Get off my foot! Oh, sorry, Chip. Alright, guys, we're in the parking lot of the Sanityville Movie Palace here. We just finished watching Mission Impossible 6. Ben, your general thoughts on the film? I think it was fun. I think it had a lot of action. I think Tom Cruise ran a lot of miles. I think he's uh, able to sprint for miles at a time. That's pretty impressive. I think the hand-to-hand combat scene in the bathroom was awesome, but maybe not as awesome as other scenes, listeners. You'll have to wait to find out. We might mm. fight about that. Interesting. We might have a little hand-to-hand sanity fight in here. Mm-hmm. Jake, your thoughts? Oh, it was good fun. I also thought that it was good fun. Uh, so you guys want to, let's see, we could go to Hrothgar's Hall, Dinky's Diner, or Perkin Bean if you guys want to get some coffee. It's kind of late here. Uh, well, we never go to Perkin Bean to talk about the movie, so let's just have a change of scenery and do that. All right, guys, well, as you know, the way that we discuss these films is we do something called death matches, which I'm just going to pull out the death match timer here and put it on the table. I am going to, basically what's going to happen, we are going to do uh, this versus that, something from the movie versus something, or a question about the movie, like... Is Incredibles too feminist? Is Incredibles too feminist? You know, one person had to argue it was, another person had to argue. Each person will be given a minute. It will be timed at the end of the minute. The other person will be given a minute to respond, and then maybe we'll have a little back and forth. That's basically how it works. So we are going to start with practical action. Now, this movie's got a lot of true or false, Ben. This movie has a lot of great practical actions. Yeah, it's it's true. It does. The action's very practical. It's Tom Cruise I can really use around does the house. do a so. halo jump. He really does fly the helicopter. Yeah, he became a licensed well, helicopter pilot, apparently, to Yeah, and New Zealand was the only place that was going to let him fly those stunts and rolls, and he flew them himself, and so they filmed it in New Zealand. And I didn't even know the difference. Me neither. This movie had a lot of great practical action. Another way, way that you can do action is with CGI, computer-generated imagery, such as the Avengers movies, or earlier movie this year, Black Panther, or the Avengers. You know, you got, like, lots of CGI guys fighting each other and punching each other and stuff. And so you could argue which form of action is better. Jake, I'm going to have you argue for the practical action, and I myself will argue for computer-generated imagery. Okay. So, Jake, 
go ahead. Go first? Yes, you okay. can go first. Uh, one, two, three, go. Okay, so you can make a case that a lot of the stunts that especially Tom Cruise likes to pull off are unnecessary, that they can be handled with stuntmen or with CGI just as effectively, and it's all just a big marketing ploy. If that's your thing, if you want to make that kind of argument, you can make it, and it might be dumb. I'm not quite sure. But it adds a certain je ne sais quoi to these films, both if you know that he was actually hanging from a helicopter in real life and actually flying it, and in and, I mean, so that's, on the one hand, knowing that is just cool to know. And on the other hand, and it gives a kind of cool vibe, makes it feel like there are real stakes here that are being caught on film. And the other thing is it actually brings a, a true-to-life vibe to those kinds of scenes that you just can't recreate with CGI, no matter how good the CGI is. So I'm all for, wherever possible, having that practical action, putting the director, putting the cinematographers in the box, putting the actors or stuntmen on the spot and really trying to pull off something that looks and is real and feels true to life. All right. I shall respond. (laughs) All right. One, two, three, go. Uh, CGI action is really, really great. And in fact, it's inescapable. It's just a thing. I mean, I'm sure that they removed lots of wires and safety harnesses. I know when Tom Cruise climbed the Burj Khalifa in Mission Impossible 4, he was really climbing it, but also he was on a big safety harness. And I think that CGI is really, really awesome for augmenting this practical stuff. And if you think that they do, that they're not augmenting Tom Cruise all the time, if you think that what we just saw wasn't in fact, in some sense, a CGI action movie, then you're crazy. Um, <laughs> that's what. I, sorry, if, if, the, the, you know, the PR people are going to tell you Tom did this and Tom did that, and, 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 and I, I'm not saying that he didn't, but on the other hand, he didn't. It was CGI. (laughs) We just saw a CGI movie. And so, yes, you can get a lot of cool details with by doing as much of the practical as possible. Time! If you think about something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, where the guy is sliding under the truck, and it's a really cool stunt, it's also really, really obviously not Harrison Ford. Now Now you just do a face swap, and you put Harrison Ford's face on there. And I'm really thankful that CGI has come along and let us do that stuff. I will grant, since we're off the clock now, I will grant Jake's point that it's great when you do it as practically as possible and you just capture a certain a certain weight, a certain, just a, an animator might not think or that an animator would have to spend millions of dollars and years to think of all the variables of even, you know, how some how of the How the wind's going to act and how the... Right. Know. I remember seeing a thing on the Desolation of Smaug and how they CGI'd the, the coins and it took them a, a year or something to figure out that coins, and this is relatively late in the CGI game, right? Like you'd think that they'd be able yeah. to do coins, but the coins were really falling quickly as as Smaug came out of them or as they were, you know, a hobbit ran through them or whatever. And what they found is that real coins, and, and it took them like lots of research and studying, real coins have a weight such that they really don't cascade. They just slow to a halt almost immediately. Mm-hmm. There's a ton of inertia is that the word i want inertia with coins so those are the kinds of things that animators are always having to figure out and it's difficult and sometimes they don't get it right and that's why those marvel movies can look pretty weightless and lack a certain je ne sais quoi so jake basically wins and that practical action is great and this movie does gain a lot from it and something like mad max fury road gains a lot from it i will maintain my point that you really don't see a non-cgi movie now and basically sure. the, wor- the world's better for it yeah and you have to but you have to ask like cost return like the whole halo 
thing, like you say, there's CGI lightning all through the scene. Right. And it does look CGI. I mean, it, it looks like maybe they just CGI'd them falling after he jumped. It's actually a yeah. Little, well, the Halo scene is actually a great scene. It's a scene in the movie. People haven't seen it where Tom Cruise does a Halo jump. If that to me might as well have been in CGI because it looked like CGI anyway. Why not just do it in front of a green screen? Maybe it probably could have actually looked more realistic. So I just think use whatever techniques gonna tell your story. Uh-huh. Really? Yeah. It actually made me think of the Iron Man three falling from an airplane scene, which looks more realistic. I have to say. I mean, that was that was a practical effect. Was it? Yeah, it actually was. For real? Yeah. That was a bunch of people, like uh, parachuters. That Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't even know that. The only CGI part of that was Iron Man. Huh. But, uh, and that's well, a really cool scene. I lose! <laughs> <laughs> and maybe I lose. I, I just, don't, I don't I know. Just, you just named a great practical. I, I think practicals, I think people should go practical as often as possible. I'm also glad that, you know, it always makes me mad whenever you hear about a stuntman dying for things. Like, we have the technology that no one should have to put their life actually yeah. at risk for a piece of entertainment No, that's, that's PR, though. If yeah. Tom Cruise wants to be his own stuntman. There's a famous, the, the Revenant, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio spent time in the wilderness. And there's a famous scene in that movie where he has to eat raw meat and he actually ate it. And then he throws up on camera and it's all real. Well, the reason t- Leonardo DiCaprio threw up is because he's a vegan. He doesn't like any kind of meat. It all disgusts him. And so for his art, he stuffed this meat down his throat. But it's like... The character actually probably would have enjoyed the meat. That's the kind of weird territory you get into when an actor's not just being an actor, like they're being paid to do, in the same sense that Christopher McQuarrie is unpretentious about being a director. I think an actor should be unpretentious and maybe just act in some of this stuff instead of like trying to be all method about it. So I like Tom Cruise. I like his brand. I like practical stunts. I do get a little tired of the PR and the hype that comes with all this kind of stuff. So that's why I'm arguing that everything should always be CGI. I win. <laughs> All, right. All right. Everything should always be CGI. Everything should great. every movie. The Incredibles is a great film. Why do we even need actors anymore anyway? We really don't. Uh, all right. We're going to. This movie had three, arguably more, but three really standout action scenes. You had the bathroom fight between Tom, Henry Cavell, and some other guy. The helicopter, which was Tom Cruise was in a helicopter chasing Henry Cavell in another helicopter. And the motorcycle chase, which involved lots of different variables, but basically Tom Cruise was on a motorcycle and driving through the streets of Paris. Now, I'm going to argue for the bathroom fight. Ben, you're going to argue for the helicopter scene. Right on. And Jake, you're going to argue for the motorcycle scene. Sheesh. Do I get to go last so yes. that I can come up with an actual argument? Yes. <laughs> okay, good. I'm just going in the order of, <laughs> it's all, it's up of on, okay. how it's written, yeah. So, all right. Nathan, one, two, three, go. The bathroom scene was obviously the coolest because we've already spent time talking about it, and I know that both of you guys actually think that it is the coolest, so that's maybe cheating a little bit, but (laughs) it's not because you've actually said to me that was the coolest. You've just talked about it in such a way as to indicate that it stuck with you as being something really, really cool. And indeed, it was. You could feel every blow. You could see what was happening. It reminded me a little bit of that scene at the beginning of Casino Royale where he has to get his first kill and he's fighting the guy in the bathroom and it's real brutal. This had that uh, similar brutality that was really striking for a PG-13 Tom Cruise action movie, but without being real nasty about it or actually inappropriate. It was just like a good bone-crunching action scene, and man, it was cool, and sometimes you just like to see a slugfest, and helicopters and motorcycles. It's just like, I can't relate to that, but a fight in a bathroom, yeah. Yeah, you can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, then uh, I ran out of time there. I don't know that I made any actual argument besides just to say, say <laughs> this, this is cool. This that is scene cool, was really this cool. cool. This cool. This cool. <laughs> All right, Ben, Good you job. get to do the helicopter. One, two, three, go. All right, the helicopter scene is the best because... <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> because it's epic. It starts with Tom Cruise having to ah, climb... It's the best because it's epic. <laughs> it's Yeah, because Tom Cruise has to climb up onto the helicopter, and it actually feels like he's having a really hard time and falling off, which is what is happening. And then um, he does climb in, throws some guys out of the helicopter, chases Henry Cavill in a long sequence that's really well done and does because of the practical action side of it. Tom Cruise learned to fly the helicopter. It feels like he's really doing it and really about to die. And then it ends with like a big old, you know, fist fight between him and Henry Cavill, which ends with a really great villain death, which you, Mission Impossible movies are don't often give you. So because it has all those elements and it's building up tension and intercut with other scenes of nukes being diffused, it's the most gripping action sequence of the entire movie, and it works really well as the final one. It's time. All right, Jake, you ready to defend this motorcycle chase? Yeah. All right, one, two, three, go. So what's special about the motorcycle scene, that whole chase scene, is that you can always see what's going on, and it looks incredibly well choreographed. You've got motorcycles going against the flow of traffic, with the flow of traffic, darting in and out, wrecks happening. And it goes on, and it maintains tension for an incredibly long period of time without looking all shaky and terrible. Like, you can actually see it play out over time. And, you know, you get the corners, you get the... You know, around this corner, oh, we think he's free, oh, we, he's not. And they just kind of keep playing and build uh, with that tension. Um, it actually looks legit, like how it might play out in real life. And then he gets cornered and then boom, he's got his magical way out. And that, that was just a cool, fun moment. You think, crap, what's he going to do? He's wrecked. He can hardly walk. He's going to dive into the bushes. Oh, no, there's a, you know, an escape there. Classic Ethan Hunt escape. Time. I mean, the bathroom scene's going to win because it's better, but you could really make a, a strong case of the helicopter scene. Yeah, it's, as I was arguing, actually, I was thinking, maybe I believe myself. Yeah, I think I um, could be convinced or I could convince well, myself of the helicopter. The problem is when I think the helicopter scene, I think of them chasing each other, and that's pretty great. But then when we get into all the Rube Goldberg stuff where the helicopters have already crashed and I really liked positions that, keep getting shifted and people keep ending up in different yeah. iterations, that's really clever filmmaking it's and, pretty fun yeah, it's yeah that like, was, it's, i thought you were about to denigrate it but no no, no, no it's no. great no that was great and then it, it does indeed lead up to a wonderful yeah uh, I, I kind of for, i kind of forgot I, about that i would that, rather that argue for the motorcycle chase scene against other chase scenes in films than in competition with the you know the other two two big action set mm-hmm. pieces yeah i mean you made a good argument for that scene and it it does highlight how it stands out against a lot of bad chases it's pretty, in other movies you i really mean c- i i wonder how much of that was cgi versus just being really incredibly well choreographed I well, one thing that was great about it is it, it did, looked really well just yeah, top did. to bottom incredibly yeah. well choreographed and it felt like it wasn't overhyping it it felt like it existed basically in our universe and that's Maybe how if if a super spy got really lucky, that's basically how that would play out. He wasn't going that fast. He was going really excitingly fast and weaving out in and out of traffic. But it was all within the realm of possibility. Yeah, which and, was really cool. And a lot of close shaves and a lot of lucky. And then he got you know his luck ran out in the end. So it would seem. Mm-hmm. And they maintained that tension. That was a really long chase scene if you yeah. think about it. Like, it yeah. was, but they did a really good job. Yeah. Yeah. When I compare that to say. 
Oh, I know. In Batman versus Superman, there's that Batmobile chase where he steals mm. the thing and he's yeah. just getting chased. And it's like just a bunch of stuff is happening and there's yeah. not a lot of logic to it. And Yeah. And, hey, and they managed to avoid tunnels. Yes. Hmm. That was pretty good. Yeah. Hey, one of the other fun things about that is that our protagonist started on a motorcycle and then he ended up in a BMW. Mm-hmm. And the we had a flip-flop. He was on a motorcycle being chased by motorcycles and cars. And then, boom, he's in a car being chased by cars and motorcycles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and, that yeah. was nice. That was funny. After getting out of a truck chase where he was in a truck. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so chase to chase to chase. And it's yeah. one of the only car chases I've seen in a while where I didn't feel like I had to suspend the disbelief that millions of innocent pedestrians weren't getting killed by my hero's recklessness. Well, for it to be that sensational, but avoid so many places where it could have went into sensationalism, shall we say. It's, yeah. it's really... Good, really smart sensibilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a great motorcycle All the way chase. Through. I mean, the only reason we had to laugh at Jake is because the helicopter scene and the bathroom fight were better, but... That just shows how strong this movie had sequences. Man, I'm really, I, I, the more I think about that helicopter scene, like the last third of it. It's really cool. It's and really it's good. really cool. I accept you arguing against this, but I think it's cool knowing that those camera shots were just cameras attached to the helicopter that he was actually flying. Yes, I agree. I mean, the I, only I do person think that's cool. In there. Like that was. That is cool. At the same time, my favorite part of the sequence was the obviously CGI chain of events <laughs> that happens at the where end they're trapped, where they're yeah, trapped yeah, yeah, yeah. where no actor yeah, could actually cool. do it and that was yeah. cool fun that was too. just i mean that was just like the movie had basically turned into a roadrunner cartoon at that point but i didn't care because it oh, was yeah. a really entertaining roadrunner cartoon and it was a successfully sometimes when you intercut your big action sequence with other stuff it just waters it down but that one they did successfully intercut it with other suspenseful stuff Mm-hmm. The whole well, time. it's because there was tension. All you, you had three people racing the clock in different ways, right? Right, and so it was all cut like one action scene, right? right. That's that's one thing. Mission Impossible movies, I think, have generally done well. A yeah. hey, fun, fun, especially four on. Well, so fun fact about that that I learned in that interview I was telling you about mm-hmm. the end of Rogue Nation. The test audiences said, "Oh, it feels like this movie ends five different times," and so this the studio solution was to cut one of the final scenes and Cruz stepped in and said, no, that's not the way to solve this problem. The way to solve this problem is to rescore it hmm. and to rescore it all as one scene that's instead it. of scoring it as five separate scenes. Rescore huh. it all as one scene. I promise you it'll work. And it did. All right. Hunt versus Bond versus Bourne. Jake, you're going to be Hunt. You're going to argue who's the coolest super spy. You're going to argue for Ethan Hunt, Jake. Nathan, you're going to argue for James Bond himself. And Ben, you are going to argue for Mr. Jason Bourne. It's the kind of thing I would do. Fast editing. All right, Jake, Ethan Hunt. One, two, three, go. Okay, so the coolest thing about Ethan Hunt is that he's the only one of this list that's an actual hero. He's not self-interested. He is. He has a conscience. He's out for the greater good, but he's not going to ever sacrifice a single person. He lives by a code, and that code is others first to his own detriment. He gets by on his own sort of... Uh, fierce tenacity um and and by depending on a team he's vulnerable 
Uh, he just outworks and out hustles and out fights and outthinks everybody. And it's not that he's a superhero so much as he's just a guy who's committed to doing the right thing. And he's just going to find that way to win in that kind of classic American anti-hero type. He doesn't have the bloodlust or the sexual lust of a Bond. He doesn't have the self-interest, just leave me alone or I'm going to be vengeful like Bourne. He's just out to keep the world uh, safe he feels he has a particular set of skills and he feels Stop. obligated to put them to use for the people he loves and cares about and for the world at large so he's just way cooler fair 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 i'm gonna argue for james bond one two three go i will go ahead and begin by admitting something that jake just said which is that i don't know that jake exactly said this but it is very true that james bond is far and away the most amoral or even immoral of the three on this list and i think Perhaps in spite of that, or perhaps because of that, he is far and away the most relatable. Um, Particularly the Daniel Craig iteration of James Bond is a truly haunted, broken man who does have lusts like a human being, who does get beaten down, who gets tied to a chair, and we all know what happens to him there, who just actually feels like a sinner and someone that has to find some kind of credible redemption. Does the movie really know any, do the movies know all that much about real redemption? No, but it gives him a real character for Daniel Craig in those movies to play and a much more compelling one, I would say, than Hunt or Bourne. And my time is up. Ben, Jason Bourne. One, two, three, go. Jason Bourne is the coolest because he feels the most relatable. He doesn't feel the most relatable because uh, because I have superpowers and everyone I know has superpowers like Jason Bourne, but he feels the most relatable because he feels like a vulnerable person caught in the world just trying to figure things out. And that's that's the practically the whole point of all the movies is that here he is and he's, he's more broken than James Bond for sure. He's a broken, lost person and it turns out he's responsible for a lot of that, but he doesn't figure that out for a while and he goes along, gets caught in weird situations and it just feels like he's lost in the world kind of like an exile or a stranger with all these weird problems to take care of and when he fights it's just like he's fighting to stay alive he's fighting for this or that person that he loves like the girl he fights for in the first second movie and yet he does survive and he always seems like someone who knows how to navigate the actual real world his movies never descend to the kind of Rube Goldberg stuff that uh, the Mission Impossible or James Bond movies do they feel more grounded they feel more grounded because they don't have some some tech gimmicks. Instead, he's just a superhero who can defeat Kills people with phone 15, books and sure. pens. Fifteen and, yeah, yeah. trained soldiers I, with a pen. I feel, feel, <laughs> feel is the key word. In other words, it feels like he's making use of the actual real world. This the movie has a vaguely document, especially the, the the sequels have a vaguely like sort of documentary feel. Like this is just like the real world, and and here he is. Right. Here's this superpowered individual that's just here trying to struggle along. Different flavor than Mission Impossible or Bond. They're all cool in their own way. I'm happy with the one I was assigned. I think I win. I'm also happy with the one I was assigned. I think... I'm happy with the one I was assigned. (laughs) I I, I genuinely think Bond, particularly as played by Daniel Craig, is far and away the the character that actually feels like the most compelling and like a an actor giving a performance kind of as opposed to just so you a, were assigned bond but you picked a very specific particular iteration of well, bond, how could so. you not though they are pretty they're yeah, different i think you have to give i mean i guess I you don't, don't have to give me that if you don't want to but it, it is what if i gave you roger moore <laughs> then i'd say roger moore is just having a ton of fun 
being James Bond and but you could give him you could give him Timothy Dalton along with uh, Daniel Craig and get kind of the same thing. Yeah, well, what I would say is the the best argument against Bond in terms of if what was the question coolest coolest well. It's not cool to be a fornicator, so I guess Bond just loses right there, and those movies are obnoxious to watch because of that aspect of them. So morally, Bond far and away loses, and Ethan Hunt, I think, is does win points there for just being kind of an all-American, Captain tenacious America with kind a gun. Of, yeah. He's going to do the right thing, and the movies don't rub his nose in the depravity of the spy world as much as those other two yeah. do. Yeah, which is kind of a cheap, easy way out. Bond is trying to play with tension that Hunt just avoids, right. skips right over. Mm-hmm. I just feel like I've seen James Bond actually have a credible love affair with uh, Vesper Lind. Like, that's a great storyline that I could not see Jason Bourne. I mean, Jason Bourne has a cute little romance with the dead, the girl that dies in the first Bourne movie and Ethan Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> cute little romance with the dead chick. Yeah, but I, in terms of emotional impact... James Bond has actually had a credible cinematic love story. Ethan Hunt, like anytime his wife, we have to deal with his wife and stuff. It's just like, okay, whatever. They just wanted to add some, graft some emotion onto this thing, but it doesn't feel organic. And Jason Bourne just kind of becomes a machine in those later movies. And so I would... Don't entirely agree there, but... If there was a new Mission Impossible coming out, a new Daniel Craig Bond and a new Jason Bourne, I would far and away be most excited for the... The new Daniel Craig Bond. I don't really care about the Daniel Craig Bond, even when I enjoy watching his movies. Well, your last Bourne movie was Jason Bourne, which was a turkey. Well, I totally agree with that, but I like the ones before. You know what? Maybe I just like British better than American. James Bond has a certain exotic cool factor or sophistication or just something that I like that those other two can't come close to. Bond's got a lot of a better mythology around him and a better cast of characters around him. You know what? The other thing is, I grew up with James Bond. I didn't grow up with Jason Bourne. I didn't grow up with Ethan Hunt. So that probably... A little bit of nostalgia. Yeah. And they can play, like in Skyfall, when he opens up the garage two-thirds of the way through the movie, and it's the Aston Aston Martin Martin, DB5. It's like... That's totally cool. That's a feeling that Ethan Hunt couldn't give you if he wanted to, and neither could Jason Bourne. All right. Next category is the movie. This is like, we're going to just probably have to have this fight for every single movie that we see these days. I guess so. Uh, Jake, I'm going to have you argue that this movie is feminist and and therefore bad. Ben, I'm going to have you argue that the movie is not (laughs) feminist. (laughs) And it looks like Jake Fantastic. All right, Jake, one, two, three, go. Well, if I were going to argue that this movie were not feminist, I would say, well, actually, Ethan Hunt's the hero and all of the women heroes in this movie are subordinate to him and serve his ends and are just playing the sort of, uh, what's the chick from The Matrix? Uh, Trinity. The Trinity. We got the, some Trinity effect going on mm-hmm. and the women are just sort of like serving uh, the, the hero. That would be the argument that I would make. And that would be a really stupid argument to make because what these movies are great at is... <laughs> Is playing as you try to cut your legs out running. Uh, yeah, I know. They, they're playing to all of the things that we know and feel while subjecting us to the bad sexual grammar of a woman who's totally awesome and totally competent and can take out 5,000 men and who's going to save the day and save Ethan's life and be there when he needs him and he would not be alive and he would not be able save to go Peg's on life. and save anybody else's life without, without you know, his feminine sidekick time up so it's subtly subversive and more subversive than a straight-on pro-feminist you know wonder woman type movie all right ben one two three go 
Well, thanks, Jake, for setting up my argument for me. I do appreciate that. However, the proper way to frame it is that all of the women are <laughs> dependent on Ethan Hunt, and they're always looking to him as vulnerable women. And that's that's the stronger <laughs> that's the stronger form of your argument is that they're all like waiting for him to protect them or make decisions for them. The whole movie, even that like white widow chick that he does an arms deal with, is practically falling into his arms. Anyway, so yeah, so his wife his wife is you know like a submissive wife and she's been like a ghost for his sake for years and years and years of the franchise and then he sets her free and then the other girl is just like basically depending upon him to protect her and guide her and not kill her when he runs her over with his car and stuff like that and so if i guess this this is all on a scale since i don't deny there's some feminism in there but it's closer to the not feminist side in the way it ends up treating its women heroes they're not like the black widow where it wouldn't matter if ethan hunt was around they would just do their thing not true why don't we do the next one and then we'll have a discussion because it's sort of related, I think. Great. So let me, uh, I'm going to argue that the way the movie treats Ethan Hunt's love life is legit. And Ben, I'd like you to argue that it is not. So. Sure. I don't know. You might be kind of flipping here a little bit, but uh, okay. Let me see here. I have no clue how I'm going to argue <laughs> this at all. <laughs> I guess I'll just pu- push uh. the buzzer <laughs> and see what happens. You can do you know. it. <laughs> Okay, basically, for people that don't know, I'll just recap what happens in the movie. Basically, we find out that Ethan has divorced, I guess, his wife. She's married to another man. She's living off the grid, disappearing um, as a way for Ethan to kind of protect her from the consequences of the fact that he's a brilliant super spy that people are always out to kill and she'd be in the line of fire if she was you know lived publicly as his wife so we're supposed to be okay at the end of the movie and she very much is okay with that being the reality and that frees ethan up to be in love with this hot uh, british chick from part five and that is an incredibly <laughs> legitimate <laughs> thing <laughs> for the movie to do because uh ethan is protective of his wife he wants her to be out of harm's way his first wife and sometimes in order to to save something you have to sacrifice it so you know if i thought my wife was going to oh darn i'm out of time (laughs) (laughs) all right the credible way of making this hey wait you know what ethan hunt is trying hard to live in the world he wants to get away he marries this woman, he loves her, he wants to care for her, but he feels responsible for the world's problems because of his particular set of skills. He knows the only way to protect her is to have a different life and to separate from her and to put her into hiding. He sets her free, he goes about in a sort of anti-hero way to do that, and they come to terms with it. And it's an uneasy come to terms, but they come to terms with it. And in the morality of the movie, it makes its own sense. And... Uh, jives with Ethan just trying to be a good guy and do the best. This other girl, Ilsa, she's already in the line of fire. She's already got the same set of skills. Mm -hmm. It is a little convenient, but it all tracks. A little bit like how King David had to leave Michael behind. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) For a number of years, so much so that I believe she was given to another man, if I'm recalling correctly. You you are. And... um, all right, Ben. One, two, three, go. Uh, well, there's only so much. What I'm saying is that <laughs> a great man like so King David, much. it can be. Of my morality, I'm willing he, to yield when, when, to Mission Impossible. I'll, I'll give you another minute. But what? Okay. A great man like King David, who it was a great man, is willing to yield to the demands of pragmatism as he protects the people that 
he loves and <laughs> survives in a world that wants to kill him and in a world where he has to establish dominance over a whole bunch of horrible bad guys. That's just one historical example of how the sort of thing that Ethan Hunt's doing here actually isn't that crazy or conven- or, or overly convenient. Okay, Ben, one, two, three. No, go. no, no. I think you should keep going. No, that's uh, it. That was, that was <laughs> but this hole is not quite deep enough yet, so just keep digging. <laughs> okay, ahead. great. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, there's, there's only so much, you know, of morality. I'm really, I enjoy yielding to a movie and, and not bringing in and judging from the Bible standards. And it's just like, great. We get to watch a guy dissolve his marriage for the sake of having a, a hotter action movie star to cling to him and fall in love with and for the fanboys to look at in the next Mission Impossible movie. And that's all that's going on here is that J.J. Uh, Abrams saddled Ethan Hunt with a wife to ground him in the real world in Mission Impossible 3. And ever since then, she's been kind of an annoying tag-along storyline that pretends to give Ethan Hunt emotional grounding. But it's just disgusting to like pretend dissolve your marriage for the sake of saving the world and then get a hot chick in place that that's all it is. And King David didn't dissolve his marriage with Michael to save her from world dangers so that he could be out there saving the world. He was actually just hiding in caves for a while. And then he came back and got Michael. Uh, that's all that happened. Yeah, Ben wins. <laughs> Jake made a noble effort. But oh. it is, I was pretty disgusted at the last two minutes of the movie where yeah. the wife just has all this dialogue where she's like, it's great. I'm so happy that I'm living my life. And it's just supposed to wave a magic wand and yeah, make she's, us... She and comes, now you can go off with the other hot back for the sole purpose of waving a magic wand and letting her disappear from the scene and not being a dangling plot thing that actually allows Ethan to have... A hot love interest. Yeah. And it's just kind of disgusting because his wife is a beautiful woman. She's also a little bit more age appropriate and a little bit older and a little bit maybe past her prime in the beauty department, even though she's quite an attractive actress. And so what you're really watching is her diminish so that Tom Cruise can be with a hot young thing. I mean, that's yeah. Really... Oh, Michelle, my mom. Monahan, by the way, 42, not actually all that age appropriate for 56-year-old Tom Cruise, but by Hollywood standards, I'm going to say a decent amount more age appropriate. Rebecca than Ferguson is uh, 35. Yeah. 34. Just seeing them on screen and seeing what they represent on screen, Rebecca Ferguson is young and uh, sexually potent in a way that Michelle Monaghan is not, and it's pretty weird to see Michelle have to wave the magic wand at her own dismissal. And top news on uh, hmm. on uh, IMDb: Mission Impossible Fallout finally solves the franchise's leading lady question or problem. I guess people are liking this move. Yeah, people are dumb. I don't know, guys. Is there anything else worth saying about the way that the movie treats women? I guess it's pretty standard for a movie. I think you guys are actually both right about the feminism. And I think that we'll often find this to be the case, that movies pay a lot of lip service in very bad ways that subvert sexual grammar, as Jake said. But also because God made the universe in a certain way and a movie will be more entertaining if, and Hollywood people know this, if they actually play to the reality of the world. So women are going to have all their own like moments where they're portrayed as strong, but then when the plot requires it, they will be deferential to Ethan Hunt. So that's Hollywood movies very much like to have their cake and eat it too. And it's pretty lame and they should just have their cake and not eat it too or not have their cake and eat it too. Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise you get Jack Reacher too. Yeah, I never even bothered watching it. I one. didn't either. But it looked yeah, terrible. I did. It was terrible. All right. So there's a moment next next deathmatch. There's a moment in the movie 
there's a actually a couple of them, but there's one at the very end where the movie fakes us out. Basically, it makes it look like the bomb has gone off just through cutting to a sunset. Basically, you can see it if you don't fade to white and then cut Tom Cruise as the sun peaks over the mountains looks for a moment like a mushroom cloud and that's right. Yep. Nuclear blast and nope. And so the movie actually has it start begins with a dream sequence and then has another sequence where it there it looks like Tom Cruise is about to kill cold bloodedly kill an innocent and then it turns out that he was just thinking about the possibility that he could do such a thing. So the movie has a couple fake outs, but that's the big one. I'm going to argue that that was a savvy bit of filmmaking that it was good for there to ha- them to have that fake out. And Ben is going to argue that it was bad. So I will go first. Unfortunately, for me. One, two, three, go. All right, if I was going to argue that this was bad, I would argue that it was cheap, that it was manipulative, that it was treating the audience like idiots. (laughs) (laughs) Taking a page out of my playbook, I see. (laughs) However, the whole movie is cheap, manipulative, and the audience is not treated like idiots, so they are asked to suspend their disbelief and believe, for example, that Tom Cruise might die. Believe, for example, that that bomb might go off and kill hundreds of characters. If, If you, that we love, if you are willing to go with the movie that far, is it really asking so much more of you to just have another little moment where the movie twists the knife a little bit more and makes you think what makes that cheap and makes ever the movie the whole conceit of the movie which is that Tom Cruise could die that the world could be destroyed it's like we know Tom Cruise isn't going to die we know the world's not going to be destroyed we're willing to go along with it for the value of an entertaining movie and that was an entertaining moment in an entertaining movie and I've gone past my time go ahead one two three Ben well, the deal is that <clears throat> we already know he's not going to die and that his team members aren't going to get blown up and the movie has done enough clever action stuff and enough fun suspense things to carry us along, so why does it have to bother faking us out on something so dumb? I mean, maybe if there were a better fake out, but I don't know. It's, Mission Impossible is just a pretty pretty it already you know it already involves like masks and double and and double turns and secret identities and things that go wrong but then someone has another plan behind that plan and so it's just it's just it's you've already got enough you don't really need a fake out it just doesn't even add anything it's just silly i don't have anything else to say Uh, okay you came in under time I would say, like, if in Raiders of the Lost... I'm just going to keep arguing my position. Yeah, go ahead. If in Raiders of the Lost Ark, they ended with, Marion and Indy got fried by the Ark. Oh, no, they didn't. That would be weird and dumb because that movie is not a series of fake-outs. But for a Mission Impossible movie, which is basically built on a TV show that wasn't an action TV show, was, in fact, a puzzle fake-out TV show, and then a movie that is basically nothing but a series of masks and reversals and fake-outs, why not? pile another one on why not ben what makes it qualitatively different the reason is that that fake out is just a dumber fake out because it's not like a plot element that went wrong it's just like a fake visual like we are faking you the viewer out it's not like something happening in the movie world it's only happening to the viewer but i mean if we were just following tom cruise we would follow him as he set up the The fake hospital people out in the in the movie is to fake out the viewer and make you feel like, oh, oh Ethan's got, or whatever, the director's got one up on us. If, if we're playing by the rule, the basically the rule of the movie is we know what Ethan Hunt knows, except for that they cheat that 4,000 times every time it's convenient and entertaining to do so. And so this is just, just another... Just let it be entertaining. This is another example of this. What I... 
am going to jump into this argument mm. with total sincerity, not taking a point of view that's assigned to me. I didn't mind it at all. I actually liked it. I liked that fake out. I liked for a moment being made to think, what if they actually did this? What if what if the next Mission Impossible movie is Ethan lives in a world where he finally screwed up and he couldn't pull everybody through? That That was just a fun little, all of that passed through my head in a split second where I was able to just sort of go along with them and suspend that disbelief while also knowing that, of course, Ethan always wins and the team always comes through. And I just thought it was a nice touch. It added to just a little bit more fun. Oh, yeah. Well, what I have to say to that, Jake, is that I basically agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> and I disagree with you both. I thought it was super cheap and I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> You did a good job arguing the opposite point. Yeah, I sort of convinced myself, but also I hated all three of those moments. I hated the dream sequence. I I didn't hate it. I'm not going to be hyperbolic. I'm the dream sequence. The dream sequence is nice. I guess wasn't really meant to be a fake out. Yeah, no, it wasn't a fake out. It was was Sean Harris from the beginning. Yeah, it was the bad guy in his evil villain voice doing the wedding ceremony. (laughs) So I didn't necessarily mind it but there is something cheap if i had been arguing ben's point of view i think i would have pursued the line that ben sort of started on which is that there's a difference between the story having a built-in fake out and the cinematographer and the filmmakers just being like we're gonna trick you here that that is the best line of argument that you took yeah Yeah, we're just playing a trick on the audience with our cinematography is is different and is kind of cheap in itself. I'm trying to think of a, another example of that kind of thing, but I Oh, can't. there's there's all kinds of stuff like that. Well, I'll tell you uh, one thing that I always hate is in horror movies when like a cat jumps out and scares someone or when someone in that Jurassic Park movie that came out recently, there's a scene where there's a woman walking through a lobby or something and then we hear a noise it's and the then, nanny it's, and it's then a, it's a kid. And it's a little girl and I don't remember if Jurassic Park is actually guilty of this, but a lot of times in scenes like that, it'll be like, if you take one second and think about the geography of where they were, there's no way someone could actually sneak up. What we had was a tight shot and a loud burst of music. And yeah, this is all visual fake, right. visual audio fake out. Honestly, that was my my most legit jump of that movie. Yeah, it's not a poorly done jump scare. It's just a poorly motivated one that wouldn't happen in real life. And that's the kind of thing that I don't like is... Well, that's... I mean, and that's also why it was successful is because in real life, there's no way this is credible if the little girl is what I'm supposed to believe is sneaking up right. on this woman. There's there's also... There's a very common one where it's like it, it, it characters have just come out of some big action scene or trauma and one of them... Maybe they're dying and you're not sure. And then the other character's like, wake up, wake up. You know, and then it cuts to a grave. <laughs> and then it pans over. And you're like, oh, no. And then, oh, both characters, and they're standing at someone else's grave. And he lived, you know. Right. That kind of fake out is a pretty common. Yeah, where it's just like, it's <laughs> not the story naturally, organically yeah. having a suspenseful moment. It's just like the camera was placed here so that you'd feel something. And and the line between that and just a great Hitchcockian suspense scene where every camera shot is placed somewhere to make you feel something is a thin line, which is how I could make my argument against Ben, which I think was not maybe a bad argument. But nah, it wasn't too bad. Yep. All right. The fake out wins. All right, Jake, you're going to argue this is the best action movie of the year. I'm going to argue that it's not. One, two, three, go. 
Okay, so to take on the field, the field is what? The field is Black Panther, Infinity War, Ant-Man and Solo, the Wasp, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Incredibles 2, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Incredibles 2 and Solo both have each have a great action scene, train scene. Mission Impossible's already done that. But Mission Impossible's action scenes are just better and the suspense really at, uh, driven through all of those action scenes. So they're not just pure spectacle. It's just a lot of suspense, a lot of well-played, cool-looking stuff. Three really great, four really great scenes if you include the Halo jump. So, and time. Okay, I'm arguing for something else. One, two, three, go. I'm going to say the best action movie of the year is Avengers Infinity War because action isn't just about great action scenes just it isn't just about setting up great action shots and editing them together it's also about your emotional investment in the action and infinity war is full of characters i care about in high stakes situations where a universe that i greatly care about is happening and it's got all these really fun characters with all these different powers and they're bouncing off of each other in new clever ways just that scene alone where they take on thanos on his home planet and spider-man is jumping through the portals and iron man's doing his thing and those guardians are doing their thing is just really really cool and rewards years of investment in these characters both emotionally and just in you know, track and what they can do and what they're capable of and now you're seeing them in these new fun combinations and it's super great and i'm out of time i win avengers Mm. Eh. if you were going to go back and if you were going to uh say man i wish i could have a friday night six months from now man i really just want to watch some good action Mm -hmm. i could rent infinity war or i could rent mission impossible six fallout yeah, there's no question it'd be Mission Impossible mm-hmm. 6 Fallout. I will admit right. that. Yeah. 10 years from now, which movie will I remember more fondly as a movie? Probably Avengers, because it has characters I care about, which is. Yeah, but that's about thing. the characterization. It's not about the action. Yeah. <clears throat> which action scenes will I end up ultimately probably watching more? Avengers, again, just because it's. Because you'll come in back to those movies, because they're part of a bigger universe that you care about more than the Mission Impossible universe. But. I mean, in that sense, it's sort of like I already digested Mission Impossible. There's not a ton more it can give me. Like, I got it. Uh, I don't know if I need to see it again. It was great. It was fantastic. I feel that way about both of them, but I've already, I'm on record as not really caring much about the Marvel Universe. So Anyway, Jake wins, of course. Should children see Mission Impossible? There was a child of about three or four wandering around the theater. A for older than that. I thought he was more like six or seven. No, maybe it was six or seven. I don't know. He was wandering around like a toddler the whole time and yeah, not sitting in his chair. Weird. It was pretty obnoxious. Mm, but, uh, there, was, there was one giant pool of blood, one F-bomb, and one scene with some gross sexual in- innuendo that was supposed to be funny. In terms of just action suspense fun thriller it's a it's about as clean and fun and Mm -hmm. uh, as you could want it to be but i had forgotten about that whole bathroom innuendo scene that does it was a little gross it's pretty gross but yeah but overall i would say this is a pretty you know you're not gonna have to put up with a bunch of female flesh on display very very little in that department still more than You'd want at your church, for example, you know, on Sunday morning. But for by the standard of this movie, really pretty clean in that department, and also not super bloody in the violence department. Although lots of violent 
action, lots of punching, lots of choking, lots of a great villain death, battering and bruising, and a very well great well a fairly intense villain death. Maybe you should <laughs> yes, say. very much something that I could see happening to Wiley E. Coyote. <laughs> this villain death <laughs> was all right. So children should definitely see this movie. Then take your children, see the movie. Skip I think PG thirteen is an appropriate rating, and if you're the kind of person that flexes. 13 down to 11 or 12 for Marvel movie, you probably won't feel bad flexing it down for this movie. Yep. If you're the sort of person that's bothered by the immodesty of a woman being an action star, which you should be, then there's plenty to bother you in this movie. So do as you will. We've accurately described the movie for you. Know what you're feeding on or allowing your kids to feed on in terms of the bad sexual grammar that is rampant in Hollywood. Be prepared to talk to them about it. Things that are obvious to you, like the fact that a little woman probably can't beat up a bunch of big hulking guys might not be obvious to a kid. Your 11-year-old daughter. She might decide to go to work for MI6, and then she'll fall in love with Tom Cruise, and he'll leave his older wife to be with her. And that's not what you want, is it? If it is what you want, then you know what to do. Bring your daughter to this movie. Don't talk to her about it. Sounds like a plan. All right. Excuse me, gentlemen. You have been sitting here now for some time. Might I get you something else? Oh, oh yeah, my oh, yeah, bad. We just, just uh, yeah. we, we were just caught up talking about the movie. Yeah, I'd, I I would like a cappuccino though. I'd take that and maybe a, a grande. There cannot be cappuccino without first a great foaming. The greater the foaming, the greater the cappuccino. Yeah. Oh, then I'd like a great cappuccino. Oh, okay okay, then. Foam that up for him. Where's Ollie? Yeah. And what may I bring you, Reverend Menzel? Yeah, I'll just have a tall blonde. A tall blonde roast, yes. Well, clearly you underestimate the power of the dark roast. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Okay. What's, What's with this guy? Right. So just bring me the tall blonde anyway. Yeah. Yeah, can, you know what? Let's just get the check. Sound of Sanity was engineered by Benjamin Solzer, produced by Nathan Alberson, executive produced by Jacob Menzel and Nathan Alberson. Until next time, stay sane. 